Hello, hello. Welcome to Clearing the Air with me, Sasha Sidek, and and Jacob Gamble. Thanks for tuning in to 855 AM 3CR Radical Radio. Mm-hmm. And I just want to introduce this song, Babusa. It was played um, at the Louis Vuitton um, mm. fashion show recently in Paris. Like. This is the first time ever Louis Vuitton played um, a Middle Eastern song at a fashion show. And they slayed. They slayed. It went viral on TikTok. Everybody was talking about it. And yeah. So before we start, we would like to acknowledge. Acknowledge that we are broadcasting today on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Uh, and extend that respect to any Indigenous listeners who are tuning into the program today, in particular our lovely queer and trans uh, Indigenous brothers, sisters, they, thems, whatever you identify as, um, acknowledging that this is stolen land, sovereignty was never ceded, and it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And we also would like to uh, pay our respect and acknowledge uh, the trans elders past and present. Mm. Mm. Jacob, today, oh. oh my God, that interview was very inspiring. I am um, both um, interviews. Yes, we have two, yes. two set of interviews today. It's today's show is very like intellectual, um, energy, inspiring, inspiring. Yeah, the three eyes of today: intellectual, inspiring, and energy. <laughs> That's an E, baby. <laughs> In- intelligent. Yeah, there's a lot of yeah. I mean, like a lot of smart people on this show. Yes, I mean, like I've never some of the vocabs that they use, I've never heard of it. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, oh, they they're so smart. It was educated. Yeah. The, the three. I thought E's. I was just. I need my dictionary right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, you will marinate uh, yes. in these topics. This is a really great show coming up. First up, we spoke with Ari and Kin, uh, both from an exhibition held at the Immigration Museum over Midsummer. It's called The Body is More Than This. Yes, I love that. Mm. Mm. Juicy name. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a it's about body positivity as well, but th- there's more to it as well. It's mm. not about just body positivity, but it's stay not just tuned. your typical, yeah. Yeah. you know, yeah. body. It's, it's not it's a little more. No, it's more. That's why they says that my body is more than this. Yeah, and I I really appreciated how Kin and Ari were so open in unpacking mm. not just the art, but like the process of being an artist yes. and like. The, the context, the everything. Anyway, I can't put it into words, <laughs> but we will listen to them now. Oh, yes. Welcome. Welcome both to our studio today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank Thanks you. Us. It's good to be here. How's your Friday? <laughs> that is such a big question. Um, it's been a big week. My Friday is just absolute lazy one brain cell mm. left. I don't know about you, Ari. I've used all of my brain cells today. <laughs> very, very productive. I woke up at 6am and immediately went into my work desk and started working because I'm a hard, hard worker. <laughs> Gorgeous. Well, I'm on about two brain cells. Sasha, how many are you? My day? Well, I woke up. I stayed in bed a bit late because my our interview got pushed up to 1pm, so I stayed in bed a bit longer, um, <laughs> even though I'm, I was awake like seven o'clock or maybe a lot earlier but i stayed in bed <laughs> on social media and 
Yeah. Nice. That's it. So collectively, there's about five brain cells in the <laughs> yeah, room. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what I've gathered from that. <laughs> yeah. Together, we've got maybe two brain cells, the four of us. Excuse so. me, I've got hundreds of brain cells. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're working today. Sorry, Ari. <laughs> Millions. Yes, but why don't you introduce um, yourselves? Tell us a bit about you, um, what's inspiring you right now, and like, what's your role in this uh, exhibition? My name is Ari Tampi Bolin. Um, I am a contemporary artist uh, working with writing and performance and film. Um, And I have a work in the exhibition The Body is More Than This at the Immigration Museum, um, which is a gigantic floor decal with text on it that spirals. Uh, Yeah. Hello, everyone. My name is Kim Francis. Um, I'm the curator of the exhibition, The Body's More Than This. I also have an artwork in the exhibition, my first ever artwork, as we needed to fill the space. Um, And as Ari mentioned, their work is not just a floor decal. It's this beautiful, spiralling text work that's very considered. Um, And that was sort of the point of the exhibition, was for artists to make the work that they wanted to make, but... We've definitely experienced some difficulties with institutional pushback. So Mm. it feels really powerful to just do the exhibition, get it up. Um, We had an amazing turnout on our opening on Wednesday. Um, So, yeah, it feels good to have been able to put something like this on. Yeah, gorge. And The Body Is More Than This is such a delicious name for an exhibition. Tell us a bit about how that came about. What was, like, the concept of you coming up with this yeah sure um it's funny hearing the question come out of your mouth because i remember the exact same question coming out of ari's mouth i think a few months ago where um the artist and i got together and we're just trying to chat through some ideas and get a sense of where we were going so this is the first exhibition i've ever curated and from the beginning the vague idea is that i wanted the exhibition to be about work um to do with the body and how, I guess, specifically gender-diverse people and trans people, how um, we're often confined to what our bodies look like Mm. and people's perceptions of our gender and our body. And I wanted to extend an invitation to artists I truly respect to sort of play with that idea of, can you make something that's about your body but not necessarily physically about your body? Mm. Um, So that's sort of where it started from a bit of a, conceptual vague headspace um and then the artists were totally free to interpret it however they wished um and the conversation i guess of starting the exhibition began over a year ago um so it's been quite a journey Hmm. wow and what's that process been like for you ari how did it all begin and where did you or how did you get to where you are now with the work Hmm. Um, I guess I'll start with, uh, so my research, um, for the past year has looked into, um, structures of Western, Western eschatology, um, and basically just like religion and how that has had a profound impact on not just myself, my experience growing up, but also just the general, I guess, zeitgeist. Um, so I've been collecting, um, images of hell, um, and heaven, 
um, that have been depicted by artists from the 11th century onwards. Um, And I've used that as a starting point to kind of think of my own corporeal mortality and how my body is impermanent, but all I have is like a brain, (laughs) one brain cell. Um, And so uh, from that point, I uh, started... um, a lot of my methodology starts with writing and writing um, what I hope to achieve with certain artworks. Um, and it kind of just turned into a big kerfuffle of jargon that just didn't really make sense. I think um, living in this current day and age, you're exposed to uh, great depths of information that no society has ever been exposed to before and um as a result it's kind of impacted my writing practice in ways that have been absurd to be quite frank um i'm very inspired by uh absurdist comedy and absurdist theater and the way that um playwrights used to write um in weird absurdist ways i don't really know what i'm saying um but That was sort of the starting point for the work. Um, I then began writing um, what I sort of wanted to put out, and it ended up just being this spiral of things and big words and aspirations that phonetically really just didn't make sense. And so that's how the work came about, Um, just a mess of jargon, um, buzzwords that you hear a lot in today's society. Um, but presented in a spiral way to kind of, I guess, I guess it reflects the process a lot in which I went through this spiral of thinking too much, um, and using too much power out of what is realistically just one brain cell. Um, yeah, that's kind of where it started off. Yeah. And I think what I most enjoy about Ari's work in particular, this floor work is that um, you know, Ari comes from a very, like, very, ex- I find sometimes existential, and, you know, they can choose whatever or not. Um, she, she believes that it's existential, but my interpretation of it is it's this deeply existential intellectual work, but there's so much playfulness and humour in it, and that's consistently, like, what I enjoy about Ari's work is that there's this academic, sort of deep, personal sort of questioning but then the outcome is always quite humorous and quite playful and definitely that edge of dark humor, which I personally really enjoy. Um, and I think there was one phrase in particular, which I quite liked, um, or I've seen you use before where you've twisted sort of the identifier person of color and you've, um, used person of clout, which I, (laughs) I always chuckle at. Um, do you mind actually, do you have anything, Where did that sort of come from, person of clout, if you wouldn't mind? So I think um, I... So I grew up in uh, Indonesia, um, where the conception of being a person of colour is kind of non-existent. Um, When you live in a... uh, I'm not going to say homogenous society, because Indonesia is definitely not a homogenous society, but when you live uh, your... When you're being brought up without any conception of racial politics in the way that you are in the West, um, this concept that being a person of colour is 
uh, is such a strange was such a strange thing to me when um, migrating here. Um, it was, you know, just from the you, you get treated differently, you people see you in a different light. Um, everything is so very much on the surface. Like it, it, it was such a it's it was such a confusing concept to grapple with growing up. Um, and then when I started studying um, uh, a BFA and started making artwork and started having those conversations in. Uh, university, uh, a lot of the time the conversations would circle back into being about identity and being a person of color and how that influences my art making when frankly I never saw that as an influence on the way I create art. Um, I always, uh, I was always taught to kind of create um, art from a very emotionally blank space. Um, my father was a musician um, and he used to write pop music for Indonesian artists back in his day. Um, and I was always taught that art was an emotional place rather than a, a social uh, fact of the matter. Um, and so I think this person of clout phrase came about around last year um, when I had just done a wave of performance works that was really about... Um, heightening uh this sense of social currency that i have with inside my uh my body um what is it on the surface that i carry that can be used to further my career because when i had those conversations in university a lot of the time people would say why don't you make work about growing up in indonesia why don't you make work about your marginalization when i i started out making work that was just pretty pictures. Um, I loved golden hour photos. I really liked, you know, those line drawings that you'd see on Tumblr. I was very interested in form and in aesthetics and to be flung into an institution that is all about um, social politics was something really difficult for me to kind of grapple with because then it was like being placed uh, being given a mirror and being told, look into the mirror and make artwork about that. Oof. And I never wanted to do that. I always thought artists, you know, they don't see, they don't, they, they don't look into their reflection and then make work. But I guess to an extent, it is true that um, all of these social factors kind of come into the fold when making work. Um, and so I doubled up my, de my degree with sociology and that's where all the academic rigor kind of comes from. And I taught myself that I am nothing without this intense, socially, uh, politically attuned brain. Um, I spent hours and hours uh, in my first, second, third year of uni just reading books that had big words just to kind of get it. Um, and get why everyone here was so pent up with language and speaking in a way that made you present uh, in these in insanely intellectual kind of um, ways. And once that kind of was mixed with the idea that there is currency within the identity labels that you have, that was like a light bulb for me. POC is a person of clout um, and whenever I start writing with just identity labels in mind it really just boils back down to I'm a fucking narcissist and I just want that to be known and so why hide behind it 
Um, and that's where Person of Clout came in. It was it was my Instagram handle for a while, which was kind of like a funny little idea. But I developed that a lot with um, uh, through my work directing this play that I did last year called Club Night. Um, it was this play I co-directed with Margot Tanjutko um, and written by Matisse Leder, Angelica Angwin and Lottie Beckett. Um, it showed at Miscellanea last year, which was really fun. But we were really in those rehearsal spaces. We were really thinking about what uh, your physical appearance kind of presents to the table in these very high stimuli, um, superficial environments mm. where the only thing you can see is the face, the body. Mm. Um, and really, when it comes down to it, man, the body is more than this. Um, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it really is more than this. Um, yeah, and that's where it came from. You both speak so poetically of your works. <laughs> it's, I'm really could listen to you for hours, yeah. but it, it seems like um, rule-breaking and um, defying kind of what people expect art to be um, is quite a strong uh, theme in your art practice, mm. Ari. Is that a strong theme throughout the rest of the exhibition? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but there's some points in what Ari was just sort of sharing that I would like to speak to, and it's in reference to, I guess, this exhibition. Um, so I think similarly in my own practice, I've almost leveraged my identity and difference to whiteness to get government funding and resources and jobs and opportunities. And I know that a lot of people consistently, you know, need in a way to take on that approach to get, you know, access to cash or to set something up. And it's so frustrating that that is still a predicament that a lot of people in this country find themselves in where you have to describe yourself in opposition to something. It still forces you to be in relation to whiteness. And with this exhibition, it was strategic in talking to Midsummer Festival and talking to Immigration Museum and saying, neither of you have ever done something like this. This is what we're going to do. And sort of using the description around, you know, having an all gender diverse lineup of migrants of PRC people with some First Nations artists like that was groundbreaking to them but really in my own work and in the work with a lot of people around us it's not groundbreaking at all um, people are just interested in profound stories in vulnerability um, and that's got nothing to do with our identities it's just to do with how we see the world um, so I guess this exhibition it's found its feet through fighting for the opportunity and for space and for money. Um, and the artists, in a way, have found playful ways to address that too. Um, I'm thinking with Luce and Shin's work, they collaborated together, uh, collaborated together in this exhibition. Um, and there was issues with nudity and censorship um, of the work and being a museum with... I guess, school groups and things like that. There was a lot of concern with having work that shows nudity um, and the way the artists had to sort of compromise and negotiate and go back and forth. Um, and unfortunately, they did have to compromise and they did have to work within some constraints. But then, of course, Luce, who was one of the artists of the work, showed up in a beautiful, like, gown completely nude and was just there on the opening night, which I just thought 
was so extremely powerful for them to do that and to kind of hold that um, that idea in mind of this is about resistance. Um, but yeah, I just, I feel like I'm still so trapped within that socio-political context of resistance whenever I'm making projects and whenever I'm making art. Um, so I really admire where sort of Ari's coming from because I'd like to get to that place within, within my own work where I'm not necessarily thinking about those other factors and contexts, but can just sort of look at things that fascinate that fascinate me or I find beautiful. I um, think a really uh, important statement that has stuck with me that is kind of drives the ethos of why I make work. Um, it's this quote by Asata Shakur, who's a writer. Um, and she says that the schools that you go to won't give you the education you need to overthrow them. Um, and I've been thinking about that a lot since I came across that quote in fucking first year. Um, but I th think it speaks a lot to why I make work with this, I don't know how else to say it, but this IDGAF kind of attitude. Um, because regardless of where you stand, you're still within, you're still working within institutional confines and within structural confines of this legacy of capitalism that, you know, is essentially impossible to escape. And so why work with them? Why work to that? It's, uh, it'd be impossible to fix something or work with something that doesn't even want to acknowledge your existence. Um, and once I, I think once I got that in my brain that literally no one gives a shit about me, the immigration museum, the immigration institution, the galleries, the museums, everything, once I got it in my head that they do not give a shit about me, it became a bit more fun. Um, that's sort of, I think, uh, a really important thing that I see, uh, happening at least with a lot of artists around around me there's this realization that no one actually cares about your your life your your livelihood and your being mm. which is kind of bleak to say but but i feel is quite liberating because once you realize that no one kind of cares about you then you just stop caring about anyone else mm. um i went into this particular work thinking um, that it was a huge opportunity, that it was a big, important moment to make a statement. Um, but maybe the statement is illegible. Maybe the way that we're supposed to make an impact is yet to kind of be discovered. Um, and I just don't think that the way we've been brought up, the way we're taught to 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 communicate to speak to transport our ideas out there is all dictated by the isms of the world um and why work with that mm. when you can just kind of work with whatever you want um and so yeah i guess for this uh floor work um once i hit that roadblock and kind of went oh okay maybe i should stop writing um, because it, it's all becoming really confusing to me. I told myself maybe I should just write the most confusing piece of text I've ever written. Um, and that's when I actually found the, the, 
passion to make the work um yeah it was it became so much more of a fun process after that once i started thinking outside of the confines of um bureaucracy Period. Yes. Got ne- got nail clicks <laughs> in the room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're usually not this quiet. <laughs> There's so much truth there. It's yeah. relatable, uh, especially when you talk about you know um, um, trying to get money. It's um, sorry. It's, yeah. It's it's I I've tried. Like mm. I've tried many times to get grants to even do projects with the sister girls and end up self-funding because I really want to do that project. Mm. So, you know, I can relate to that. When you talk that, I'm getting flashbacks. So, yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk because I'm really good at getting money. <laughs> yes, <laughs> no, no, no. yes, now, it comes. Now, now that I... Now that they know who I am, I'm getting money now. <laughs> right, yeah, I love that. Because uh, three years ago, they don't know who I am. And yeah, I, yeah we applied for grants so many times. It's always been rejected. Yeah. Yeah, so. yeah. And I really appreciate, again, with the thoughts that sort of Ari is sharing. Because I guess from my perspective, I've had to, you know, go and get funding myself mm. or apply for grants thinking that I then have the autonomy and the control to work outside of the institution and to create something where the artists or even just myself have, um, I guess, room to play and room to experiment without compromise. Mm. And that was, unfortunately, um, that's just not where we arrived at with this exhibition. It was a really challenging process for the artists and for myself in terms of the amount of, like, emails and admin Mm. um i'm also neurodiverse have adhd so it was a super like amount of struggle to Mm. kind of you know i'm just a curator independently freelancing on the side i have other Mm. things to do and money to make um but then the amount of pressure and expectation put on me was just was just so phenomenal and Mm. beyond the pay beyond the capacity and originally the reason why i was so excited and and I'm really excited by the artistic outcomes and where we've got to from the artists but originally the intention of this exhibition was to have free reign Mm. and was to have a lot of autonomy Um, and then sort of in the months leading up to this end result there was just a lot of you can't do this you can't do that you now have to do this you have to attend at this time Um, we only have you know this support to offer you at this particular day And it was just so hard, I think, to see the impact of that on the artists. Mm. And I feel like in the past I viewed myself as like in a producer role, in a facilitator role, as someone who needs to protect. But actually I've realized that, oh my God, that's a martyr thing I've inherited from having a migrant family, being a martyr, when I actually need to get out of the way and let the artists negotiate directly and deal with the institutions, but it's it's just such a funny game, I think, mm-hmm. being in the arts industry, knowing where to push back, what to compromise on, what to negotiate, and it just gets in the way mm-hmm. of making the art and making everyone feel satisfied with the end result. Um, and I think we, we had the exhibition opening on Wednesday and the community support and the turnout was phenomenal, and I think everyone really needed that to sort of see people show up for us Um, have a lot of respect and admiration for the work. Mm -hmm. Um, It felt like a huge wave of relief of like, cool, like we've done this. Mm -hmm. We've created this moment. 
you know, I really hope it lasts in people's minds for quite a long time. Yeah, it's so beautiful <clears throat> from what I saw of the event. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> I couldn't attend. But um, what was sort of, I guess, something that, um, you know, you've had this opening event, now you've got the exhibition for a few weeks. What's something that you both hope people will take out of it? I hope that people realize that nothing matters, where, at least when encountering my my work. Um, I can't speak to the intents behind the other artists because they obviously have like a plethora of research and studio time behind that. But with my own personal work, I hope that they realize and take away this idea that nothing fucking matters. Mm. And at the end of the day, we're all just trying to grab onto any last bit of autonomy that we have over ourselves. Um, and wherever you find that autonomy, that freedom, just revel in it. And I think for me, a lot of my freedom uh, comes from being in control of uh, my physical presence and body. Um, and sometimes I think uh, relinquishing that control and relinquishing that uh, uh Autonomy, I've said that word so much, um, allows me to kind of just live life with a sunnier backdrop. Mm. Um, I think there's a lot of expectation on queer and POC and trans and um, etc. artists to create work that is innovative, groundbreaking, pushing the boundary, pushing the envelope, pushing things. Um, and I just don't think that is really fair on um, on artists like that uh, because not everyone is really making artwork to create a statement. Um, uh, and I think that that expectation is like the one thing that I hope to kind of break down. Um, it would have been really helpful for me growing up to see an artist of similar identity labels, just not giving a fuck about those identity labels. Um, and I think that's, yeah, that's what I kind of mean when I say that nothing really matters. Um, because realistically, in a different, in a completely different context, society, um, you probably wouldn't have the same. Your identity labels won't carry the exact same weight. It might carry a similar weight, but it won't carry the exact mm. same weight that it does um, in in the context. Um, and I think when it comes down to it, it just doesn't matter, <laughs> um, which is a really like weirdly philosophically nihilist thing to say, but. Um, yeah, that's what I hope people take away from it. I don't know. Watch, watch everything everywhere all at once and read that in relationship to my work. And, you know, like that, that's where the nothing matters comes from. Um, yeah. Great reference point. Thank yeah. You. It's like mastering the art of not giving a fuck. Yeah. 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 It is winning the IDGAF war. It is struggling through nothing to be struggled. That's it. I think my answer will eventually get to that question, but I think where I need to start is just sort of, 
I guess mention that I took quite a break from the arts industry because I was feeling particularly sort of fed up with these challenges that Ari's so beautifully sort of explained around identity politics and how the socio-political gets in the way of so many things. Um, and with this exhibition, um, it was sort of an attempt to reignite, I guess, that curiosity and just working with people I wanted to work with and seeing what what would come out of it. You know, where, where would we go? What will we be able to achieve? Um, and paying people really well, um, because I know a lot of us just don't get paid well. So it was great to, you know, infiltrate institutional resource, have that and give, give it to people who I wanted to have that resource. Um, all this to say, I hope that when people visit the exhibition, they sort of recognize that when people, uh, I feel like I'm trying to wrap something up beautifully in a bow for you and I can't, I think there's, there's too many things I want people to take away. I want them to feel, um, nihilistic, <laughs> I guess, after hearing Ari's, you know, thoughts, um, I guess the only way I can answer this is just my personal unfiltered thought, which is I want to leave a legacy with my work. And I think it was seeing young trans people at the exhibition who I'd never met before be present and see the exhibition and see the artists and see the work. Um, that, that just felt really powerful for me. So I think I, I want... I want people to start thinking about their legacies and what they want to leave behind, what it is they want to offer. How can they support people around them? How can they also create projects together? How can they self-organize? Um, you know, we turned a museum into what felt like a queer house party on Wednesday night. You know, that was really special. And that history, you know, that building has a history of, you know, dark immigration past and colonization. Um, so, yeah, I just, I feel like I can't give you a very neat response, but those are my unfiltered thoughts. And that's okay, honestly. <laughs> um, you've both given us so much to think about. So thank you so, so much. Did you have any final words you wanted to add? Yeah, I think I'll be marinating in your words for a little while. So thank you once again. Um, yeah, I can't wait to see the exhibition. Thank you. Thanks so much for having and us. Happy Midsummer. Happy Midsummer, <laughs> bitch. <laughs> Indeed. Welcome back to Coring the Air, eight five five AM. You're joined by the Sasha lovely Sidek and <laughs> Jacob, Jacob Gamble. Gamble. Yes. Otherwise known. Um, as God, because yeah. God is a trans woman, uh, and Sasha Sadek is God. Yes, God is. And um, also, Jesus is a non-binary, so Jacob Gamble is Jesus. Slay yes. Jesus. And I've Jesus! Come back, yes. I've come back to rid everyone of their sins. <laughs> if you're listening to this, just know you will live a good life. Okay. <laughs> you get a ticket to um, the party in hell. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway, anyway. Let's, let's not offend our Christian. Yeah, listeners. I know. Yes. Um, um, anyway, um, 
that was very inspiring, yeah. right? Like I said earlier, the, um, that interview, wow. Both in awe of Ari and Kin. Look, if you want to learn more about the exhibition um, or just follow the two amazing voices that we just listened to, we'll tag everything on our show notes. So head to 3cr.org.au forward slash queering the air. Um, and once again, the body is more than this. It's at the Immigration Museum, and it's happening all of midsummer until around the 13th of February. Okay. Yeah, so if if you want to find out more, just uh, look up for us on our handle at 3CR, uh, Growing the Edge. And give us a follow. Well, yeah, on our, our also Instagram and Facebook. Yeah. Yeah, on also eBay, Gumtree. What else? <laughs> Marketplace, Grinder, yeah, <laughs> Tinder, uh, seeking what, what's Bumble. that one? Seeking arrangements. Oh, married at first sight. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, <laughs> when we are together, we always joke so much, right? Okay, that's good. You know, sometimes we we need to laugh. <laughs> we do in this day and age. Yes. We really do. Yes. Um, laughter is the best medicine. They said, right? It is. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, next up. We've got a gorgeous speaker um, who I was blown away mm-hmm. equally by the passion um, and the the intellect behind the work of Hao Zhong. Uh, she's a PhD student, I believe, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and, and she's working... On, uh, well, she just published the first paper of a PhD about the experiences of queer international students uh, during the COVID pandemic, in particular students um, who have come from China. Mm. Uh, and she spoke to me earlier all about it. Have a listen. So welcome, Hao, to the studios of 3CR. Thanks for coming in today. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear all about your PhD. Um, but first, I'd love to know a little bit about you. Mm-hmm. So you're an international student at Deakin University. Um, where are you from originally and, and what are you studying now? So I'm originally from China. I'm a Chinese queer female researcher in now Melbourne. Um, so um, I'm in sociology, but I'm more specialized in queer studies and youth studies and also mobility studies. I know it's a long list, but <laughs> I try to cover them all. Um, so I'm doing my PhD now. Uh, my PhD is about Chinese queer female, female international students, queer and adult identity making in Australia. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and before I did my honors about uh, Chinese lesbians double marginalizations on social media. Wow. Mm. So you must be so knowledgeable on this area. And I feel like it's an area that we're so untapped by Australian media. So I'm, I'm keen to pick your brain. But tell me a bit about what um, LGBT rights are in China and, and what your experience was like growing up there. I left home um, at the age of 17, so it was kind of late, like late adolescence, and I think most of my participants share my experience, like they left th- their homeland in their uh, late adolescence and early adulthood. That's the kind of the key period for their ident- uh, identity making as a queer and as an adult. Um, so for 
we're talking about now, right, in China, I, I don't think it's a really good time to be queer in China. They have censorship about queer content um, on TV, on, on, on the screen. And also we have like really subtle censorship on social media as well. But there's no like clear um, discipline or lines about what you can say or not. And also, even though the... Um, homosexuality is not criminalized um, in China. They're still stigmatized um, mostly. But I will see, I will say the younger generation, they're trying to um, get more knowledge about queer uh, theory. <laughs> That's great. And also they have um, friends and communities established around them. So I would say it's probably getting better in somehow, but like the, mm-hmm. um, the governance on queer content and um, queer people, it's not really good. Mm, I see. So what was it like, I mean, for you, are you fully out to your family right now or what's sort of your relationship back home? I'm fully out to my parents and uh, my mom is such a great supporter and I'm out, out with my partner. So we have been together for more than three years now, almost four years. <laughs> Well done. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> that's, that's great. It, it, it's definitely a great part and an important part in my adulthood and try to figure out who I am. Mm. Um, and I, I'm really, really grateful for my mom's support um, um, for who I am as well. Yeah, wonderful. And tell me a bit about um, the PhD that mm-hmm. you, uh, the, the paper that you recently published about queer students international students and their experiences during the pandemic? What were some of the key findings? Um, first of all, I would say that's really, I'm, I'm really, really grateful for the opportunity to conduct a PhD during the pandemic. I'm not being sarcastic here, but that was really difficult. But mm. um, because like the lockdown and everything, the travel bans, I was not not allowed to travel and meet many of my participants. But it was also really, sorry, a unique opportunity for me to kind of um, explore how international students are experiencing during such a critical time, the pandemic. And in my recent paper, I talk about their um, identity negotiation, majorly queer identity negotiation with their transnational families back home. Um, And I focus on their communications on social media. And as you can probably tell, like because of the border closure and the travel bans, um, it's very hard for them to see each other face to face for two years. And they majorly relied on uh, relied on in the internet, social media, to stay connected with their families back home. I see. And what was sort of the impact of, I guess, the the separation? Because you talk a bit about the immobility of borders, but the mobility of the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to elaborate a bit on what that means? Yeah, yeah. So because my participants were international students and um, they're kind of like majorly financially relied, dependent on their parents. And there was such a tricky time for, you know, Chinese to be overseas as well, because during the pandemic, we are often become became the uh, the target for racism and also stigmatized because people are spreading um, things about like Chinese virus and all that kind of stigma. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in our community, and a lot of people feel unsafe during that time, and they are they were experiencing such a high level of like、um, anxiety and uncertainty about their study and life. So during that time, I would say people try to stay like keep a very stable tie、uh, with their families, so their their life would you know. Stay as stable as they can, and during that time, queer identity can be a really triggering point for them to disturb this kind of stable、um, relationships because you don't know how your parents will react to you, your sexuality, your relationship. So、um, they try their best to keep their queer life away from their family back home, and that's how I say they will try to post something on social media benign. That's Eat, that's eating well, so they will post something like, "Oh, we we have a great meal every day," and try to keep their parents updated. Like, okay, we are living a healthy and safe life over here, so you don't need to worry about us.、Mm. But、uh, there's always a risk behind social media. It's like they can leak something as you are not expected it. So some of my participants、uh, experience leakage, which is like their parents found out their relationship or sexuality and identity. Via their social media posts, and they will out it by social media, and how they try to deal with this really unexpected incidents、mm-hmm. when they are staying away from their families, and that's the interesting part to bringing the pandemic's、uh, immobility because of the border closure and travel bans. They were not allowed to see each other, and their families were not able to come. And confront them in face to face, so somehow it creates a, you know, helpful in between space for them to cope with their emotions. Then about、um, homosexuality, that's what I say because that's kind of their families are 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 still considering it,、mm. um, and also try to you know make negotiation about their identity, both the kids and the family. I see. So this space and this time apart、mm. um, was that helpful for families to reconcile with their children's、uh, homosexual identity? I think that's that's、um, a, you know according to my participants' experiences, they are. So one of、mm. participants, even I, I mentioned that in my paper, like、um, she mentioned about oh thanks like. Thank you so much about the border closure. Otherwise, my parents will come and snatch me. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> She was quite worried、mm. after、uh, the the leakage, the incident, because her parents were very traditional and con, con, like conservative. And she was worried about like the all the aftermath after that coming out. Even it's not coming out. I would say it's leakage because she didn't do that by by on purpose. And.、Um, And she said that she mentioned this to her friend, like, "Oh, thank you so much. I, I'm so glad there's a border closure right now." And the other thing is like,、uh, because one of my participants,、um, her partner is going through the gender affirming therapy, and she was quite worried about that because there can be, a, you know, information overloaded. Like her parents will definitely be overwhelmed by. By so many things in her queer identity, her queer relationship, and everything around、um, her partner. So she was planning to kind of, you know, pace herself and in the sh- information sharing process and get her parents ready for different information throughout the days. So now she's still ongoing <laughs> the process,、mm-hmm. but she felt like because they they couldn't, like the parents couldn't come and, you know. 
face everything and check the fact she was able to control how much information she would like to share with her parents after the leakage. Wow. <laughs> My gosh. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like navigating a, a pandemic and lockdowns is hard enough, but when you're juggling that on top of it, yeah. I mean, that would have been a lot. Definitely, definitely. But I think it provides us a really new and um, different angle to see through the pandemic. I'm not like saying we're minimizing the difficulties and mm. all the sufferings international students were going through, and I think they're still going through um, the challenges the pandemic brought us, but it's more like how we can queer the the impact of uh, the pandemic and also social media and mm. think about what's the possibilities and impossibilities they can bring us um, as, as queer young people, as queer international students. Yeah, absolutely. And do you feel like um, with queer international students, is there a lot of mode switching as in you have one facade when you're here in Australia and then perhaps a different facade when you're back home or communicating with family? Yes. Uh, I think one of my participants mentioned a work called Double Life mm. um, um, in in her interviews or in our phone calls. Um I think they are really trying hard to manage different aspects of their life. Some of them were already all out, like during our interviews, and they had different challenges, like about um, how to deal with the the, the backlash, <laughs> and also how to nego- continue negotiating um, their identity with family. Some of them were uh, still in the closet, so they try to seal and plan what's the the coming so-called coming out coming out plan with their family and also how to stay in the closet but still be themselves overseas. So it's always like negotiation and trying to find the balance and try to find the protection for themselves. Yeah, yeah. My gosh, it's (laughs) it must be overwhelming. Um, But as you said, at least there was some good um, in between space and Mm -hmm. that term. identity negotiation as well. That's something that came about through your research. Mm. What does that phrase mean? I think people have different definition of negotiation. And for me, I think I define that what as a as an ongoing process, you try to weigh different values, different system of values, different identity, because like as, as uh, we, are, we are Chinese, we are female, we are uh, queer, we're international students. We have like different like different identities within our life, and it's how we have to face the reality. Like we have to negotiate among them and mm. try to find our position and find our position in society, also position for ourselves. How can we deal with ourselves and deal with people who love us and we love? So. That's somehow a really complicated thing to do every day. Of course, yeah. And moving uh, aside now from like biological families, mm. have you found that uh, the the local or the domestic um, students or just the queer community uh, who are born in Australia, mm. um, have they been welcoming from your research or from what you've been hearing of international students who are queer? I think for myself, personally speaking, I always feel really welcomed in the local community. I have uh, friends um, who are who are like Australian, who are local, and 
I I think most of our friends are queer, so that's really interesting as well.、Um, and I also feel really happy to be engaged with like、um, you know social movements here and also、uh, the university community. But it's not. Easy for everyone. I think、mm. it can be really, really challenging for international students who have a lot of barriers in culture, in language, and in. I think that maybe some of them were still going through a, a exploration process for themselves, so they don't. They might not feel comfortable to communicate about that. And so there are so many barriers for them to kind of step into the local community and make friends. And sometimes I just feel like it's it's. It's not that easy to say like, oh, you should. When you're here, you should, you know, go check on your university's、um, rainbow network, or、mm. you should, you should meet more queer friends here. They, they're still really, really hard. Imagine you're going to like a somewhere you don't know, and you're going to a queer bar there. You still feel like、uh, I'm not really sure if I can go. It will people look at me or stare at me? Am I welcome? They have so much un- insecurity. And we should definitely understand and encourage them to feel comfortable. And but that was not easy. Mm. Mm. For sure.、And、I know you're a researcher, not you know a social <laughs> activist or in that space. But I guess if you had to list some things that you would like to see more of from、um, local queer communities or even just、um, at the university to make international queer students feel more welcome,、uh, mm. what would they be? Um, I would say maybe、um, try to. <laughs> That's interesting. That's a good question, by the way. Before that, I would like to mention that there are some like communities and organizations in Australia who are like really like ethnic group.、Um, they are really welcoming to international for international students, and I think they are really trying to make a progress there to to make.、Um, The international students and also like new migrants like feel comfortable、mm. in Australia, but for、um, universities ones, I think there are some people are trying to um, like um, introduce it in different languages and maybe bring that to social media pages so so people will know about the events happening and they will ask、uh, they will let the international students to decide, but the How they spread that information and how they kind of, you know,、um, try to let them know there's the. I think I, I was in my third year, second year to know there's a queer department in my uni, and <laughs> that was a little bit too late. I would say I would be happy if I can, I could know that earlier.、Mm. So it's how the information got spread to、uh, reach the international students and how. You feel you make them feel comfortable to engage. That would be the tricky part. Mm. Mm. Communication. Yeah. Is, yeah, it's definitely the key.、Mm. So, how much?、Um, oh, I guess my next question should be: What's sort of next for you in your academic journey?、Mm. So, I would definitely, I I love what I'm doing now. I would def, I would definitely love to do more. So,、um, after my the completion of my PhD, I hope to kind of. Co-launch. Maybe I will find some great co-authors in this area as well, and to、uh, develop some researchers still on、uh, focusing on marginalized groups like 
migrants and, and women and also maybe some of the international students but also I think I would like to follow their journey as the migrants as well who um, maybe finish their education and try to stay and migrate to Australia later so that kind of the journey uh, will be also fascinating to research mm. Mm, so I'm definitely still focusing on marginalized groups that's kind of my go-to I, I really love how the power and the strength um, this community who, who like which I'm also a member of within it um, gave me through the whole thing of course it's such uh, important work you're doing so thank you for coming in and, and sharing if you had to take one thing away from this uh, particular research we've been talking about today about queer international students mm. during the pandemic what would it be <sighs> I will say our voices matter, our experiences matter. So please listen to us and support us. We are also part of the community in Australia. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Hao, for coming in today. It's been a real pleasure. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Wow. That was wow, right? Well done, Jacob. Anyway, welcome back to Clearing the Air. At 3CR, 855 AM, you've been listening to uh, my bestie here, Jesus, uh, Jacob oh, Campbell, and myself. And we are blessed by God. Yeah, Goddess herself. Sasha Sidek. Sasha Sidek, yeah. Jacob Campbell, mm-hmm. here on your local community, Radical Radio. Uh, that was a chat with Hao Jung, mm. all about her PhD um, on how international queer students experienced the COVID pandemic. Mm. Um, if you want to learn more about Hao and all of her uh, amazing work, she's doing, I think she mentioned it earlier in the interview, she's doing a lot of stuff about Chinese lesbians um, and more sort of queer international student perspectives. So give her a follow on Twitter. We'll pop it in our show notes. Um, mm-hmm. So head to our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash Queering the air. Yes. Oh my God, it's coming to the end of the show. So sad, Sasha. I know. What's um one, what's one thing you took out of today's show? Um, the energy, like you said earlier, the energy, um, the words. Mm. Like I'm inspired with the words, the vocabulary that um, especially Ari use. So mm. I need to look out on the dictionary with all these words. We need a I'm... Shazam, Ari's <laughs> words. <Yeah. laughs> um, so intellectual, so smart. I mean, um, very inspiring. Mm. And especially with Kin, congratulations to Kin um, with this um, amazing idea that, um, yeah, that um, Kin produced. Mm. Mm. Yeah, um, second all of that, obviously. Yeah. Uh, I think, yeah, likewise, one thing I would take out of today's show is just the value of other people's perspectives Mm -hmm. and viewpoints on the world. Uh, And I think in that first interview, there was a lot of discussions about sort of going against the grain about what other people expect of you Mm -hmm. um, and sort of just staring down life. And I think we talked about the subtle art of not, not giving, giving a, a fuck, fuck. Yeah. Uh, which also happens to be the title of Sasha's <laughs> next yes. chapter in Nothing to Hide, Voices Honestly, of Trans and Gender Diverse Australia. That, 
And on that note, thank you all so much for tuning in today. Uh, we'll be back next week, same time. No, we will be... Uh, oh! Yes! Oh, how could I forget? Yes. Tell the listeners. We will be out on the streets uh, at the Midsummer Street Party. Um, literally Pride, like... Pride Street Party. Pride Street Party, like mm-hmm. 50 meters away um, on Smith Street, mm-hmm. uh, corner of Smith and Gertrude, actually. So come swing by, yeah, say Yeah, we hello. have our own marquee there, so we're doing a live broadcast there. Mm. Uh, uh, they would say uh, out of the studio broadcast, so that means we're going live from the marquee mm-hmm. um, to your radio station. Mm. And we'll be bringing you some voices from the parade. Yeah. Um, yeah, and just the vibes yes so check out our uh, Instagram because we will be posting all the guests that is coming into our show stay tuned up next is Salam Radio 